I love to eat and feel so much appreciation for the blessing of uh, having food to eat. And so uh, when I eat my breakfast, I begin with a blessing to the earth and the waters underneath and the air and the sun. And then the bees, because I always put honey in my tea in the morning and the cows because I always put milk in my tea and um, and then the chickens because I almost always eat eggs for breakfast and then I give thanks to the workers who pick the tea in uh, um, northern India and um, for all the many people who transport it it comes by boat to Portland where Full Tea Company cures it and then um, and then sells it online and so I imagine all the sailors on the ships who have to work and keep those containers um, free of rats and we know how hard that is here at Dharmadena to sometimes keep free of rats when there's food around and so it comes to me over and over again that there isn't a place to stop. That that prayer can just keep going on and on because we're all so connected and, and deeply connected to people that we don't know personally, but that we receive the benefits of their labor and their efforts and the benefit of their parents' labor and efforts, and on and on. And I think particularly about the people who make the roads where that tea gets uh, transported and shipped to me, because you know, building roads is a very intense thing to do. You're especially in the summer and you're working with the oil and the tar and you're drilling and it's like, it's so intense. And all those people who have made all our roads and then the railway tracks and so on. And then in this sort of acknowledgement of thousands of people who in some way or another have contributed to my breakfast, I think of other ways that we're connected. So I, I have to look at my notes because I can't remember the exact numbers. But um, we were asked to, inv uh, to consider that every atom of oxygen in our lungs and carbon in our muscles, calcium in our bones and iron in our blood was created inside a star before the earth was born. We share this elemental history with hydrogen produced in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. So this, how we share our elemental um, life with each other, going back in ways that it's even difficult to comprehend. And the carbon in our bones. And then I think of the moments and I know that you all have had similar moments where that veil of separation 
begins to dissolve and this contemplation which is conceptual actually becomes embodied in an experience where the veil of separation dissolves and it feels as though there is a life that isn't distinct from each other in the sense of I am life and you are life and we are all in life together rather than this is my life and this is your life. And there have been moments for me walking in the beach where I have seen the seagulls hovering in the air like a mobile, you know, the kids' mobiles, and something about that and just I am them and they are me. We share one life together in unity. Or hearing music. I once went to um, Tanglewood uh, concert, which is in Massachusetts, and it was um, the Boston Philharmonic playing, and there was this pianist. It was. I grew up with my father. I played the piano, and I'm going to say a lot more about him, hopefully. There's going to be time. Um, uh, so he was a pianist, and so I grew up with classical piano as some of, uh, as part of my environment, as well as a lot of African jazz, because I mentioned we also grew up with Hugh. So there was this pianist at this concert, and you could feel that there was no separation between himself and the music, that they were one. It was this like electric energy that hairs on my neck just went like this because it was just, you knew something amazing was happening. And after he finished playing, everyone stood up and the conductor even went whose name I can't remember now, went to hug him, because which you hardly ever see happen, because it was so amazing. So that experience, if it's in, it could be in music or it could be in our meditation, of moments where there's the breath and the knowing of it, and no sense of an I, just the flow of life in a, in a deep, connection and and these moments communicate to us the possibility of living our life without separation in a deep relatedness and communion with life and then there is another reality, and we've also been talking about it, right? And this reality, the Buddha said in his awakening, this other experience that is part of what lives inside of us, in the Buddha's awakening, he said, I see no beginning to it. There is ignorance wherever I see. This and this this um, mental factor that is at the root of all our distress is at the root of all suffering. 
And um, I want to I want to read. Did they bring the um, the definition of it? Let me see. Maybe I didn't. Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, I didn't. Wait, wait. Okay, so, so it is, it is the, um, it is the uh, mental factor of um, uh, a mental blindness or unknowing. Its function is non-penetration or concealment of the real nature of the experience or object. It is the manifestation of the absence of right understanding or as mental darkness and its proximate cause is unwise attention. It should be seen as the root of all that is unwholesome. This, this energy that doesn't know, has no capacity to know or discern reality as it is, lives in each of us until we're fully enlightened. So it really is very empowering to name it. And I, um, you know, I mentioned some of you weren't here because you've just come. I talked about, I think in the last two weeks, how my mother was arrested as, um, as an anti-apartheid activist by the police and that experience. But then I remembered I haven't remembered it because I was trying to look up when my father died. I forgot, so I went online and I saw an article about my mother. And I remembered, because she mentioned it, that often there, and it was just a harassment, that often in the middle of the night there would be a knocking on the door and the police would come in and they would come into our room that I have three sisters, and we were in two rooms. They come into the room, they would flash their flashlight in our faces, and they'd rip our blankets off and tell us to get out of bed, and they would lift the mattress up because they thought my parents were hiding explosives under our mattress. What parent? would hide explosives under the mattress of their children, I don't know. It was just patently ridiculous, but they did it over and over again. And it was, you know, it's like a way to undermine that capacity to sustain political activism when you're interacting directly with the police state. And I just remembered that. And I remembered it partly because... Uh, um, we've been talking about insomnia and I have like just consistent insomnia and I'm like 
yeah, that might be one of the conditions, you know. It just was, you never know, it was so unpredictable when they would come and it was extremely scary and frightening. But why I'm talking about it is because I was trying to think of um, uh, of an incident where it was clear that those policemen felt justified in scaring young children because they thought they were doing the right thing. That is ignorance when you are harming and you cannot discern it. And I just have to say the incredible suffering that is in that reality when you don't know you're harming, you're harming yourself because what kind of defense do you have to live with to take young children and fling them off their bed to look under the mattress in the middle of the night over and over again? What is that? And I'm just naming someone else to make it clear how when there's harming, it's because there's always ignorance and there's ignorance there because we can't discern the harming. So, um, and then another example is I went to an Africana primary school where we lived, there was only an Africana primary school and they believed in corporal punishment. And so that if you made a mistake, the teacher would call you up and ask you to bend down and hit you with this big blackboard ruler. And they thought that was okay. In the minds of the policeman and of the teacher who really loved to hit me in particular, because it was known that my parents were anti-apartheid activists, there was no caring and love. It, there was no wisdom and faith in their minds in that moment, or generosity, or patience, or virtue, or truthfulness, or equanimity, or compassion, or joy. And they thought they were doing the right thing. This energy of ignorance has the psychological component of the experience of inadequacy and insufficiency, of not feeling at home, of not belonging, of feeling different and separate from everyone else, of um, feeling a sense of being dislocated, of not fitting in. And I don't know about you, but I felt that a lot growing up. Right, the Buddha gives the, or the suttas give the classical definition of an axle going into the hub of a wheel and not fitting. So the wheel can't move, that can't work properly. It's that stress of not fitting. So the definition of, of, of dukkha as stress. And we, and we can feel that in, in these 
psychological experiences of ignorance when it is um, operating uh, and living inside of us. My father was an, was an, a very um, complex man. He orchestrated prison escapes for African leaders out of the country, and that took ingenuity and incredible courage. Because if he had been caught, he he that you get a death sentence for that. So extraordinarily courageous, very, I think I mentioned maybe, yes, I did mention in a Dharma talk, their commitment to ending apartheid in all kinds of ways, being part of the underground. He was enormously creative. He helped produce the first inter, uh, African, black African musical in Johannesburg with Miriam Makeba. And, um, and then also did a, the, one of the first films of South Africa around race. So then in, went into design and very creative, very magnetic, an am, amazing person. Then he gave everything up and studied acupuncture um, in his um, midlife and then went on to get a doctorate in psychology so he could counsel his acupuncture clients. He died in 1999, and there was a memorial for him in South Africa where he had, he'd gone back to live with my mother, and in England where he had practiced as an acupuncturist. And at the memorial, there was this very famous actor he had uh, counseled and, give, and worked with, Sir Anthony Sher, who came up to the person who had talked about my father in his memorial and said, you forgot to mention he was a doctor. And this person who was a good friend of my father said, no, Monty was never a doctor. That was my father's name. And Anthony Sher said, but he wrote prescriptions for me and signed his name as a doctor. And my mother had called all my sisters in a phone conversation to warn us that Anthony Sher had written an article in the newspaper about how my father had lied about his, that he, that he wasn't a doctor, that he had lied that he was, and we should know about it just in case there was any kind of reverberation around it. And my mom said, and I caught him once in his office, signing a prescription MD. And I said to him, Monty, that is illegal. You can go to jail for that. You cannot sign your name as a doctor because he just crossed the thing of doctor of psychology, Dr. Monty Berman, MD. <laughs> And here's the thing, no matter what my father achieved, it was never, ever good enough. Why? Because there was such a, a 
this, this experience that we all have had of this black hole of insufficiency and inadequacy where it feels like nothing can fill it up. And it can't when the movement from that place is to always try to be better, right? Try to make something more of what we have, which is the creation of identity. And the thing about this kind of, I am a doctor, even though he had a doctorate and was an acupuncturist and well-known and deeply respected and online and in newspaper articles, he still lied because he believed, he believed deep down that he was insufficient, inadequate, and never good enough. And that is the experience of ignorance that we all as human beings have inherited. And I'm just highlighting my father because it was so intense and I grew up with that. You know that even if I got a relatively good report from school, it was never good enough. And how painful to always be in that relationship. It's there, but it's whether we believe it or not. That is the path of mindfulness, is that it can discern that these experiences of ourselves are not the whole experience. And Venerable Fred talked about that today. They are not the whole experience because we have these two capacities. We have the capacity for communion and a deep sense of belonging and being at home. And we all have had that experience. And it could have been in not, I mentioned music or being at the beach, but it could be in any place, touching another person, touching an animal who is also a pet or a wild animal. I picked up a bird who had fallen out of the tree and in holding this broken bird, there was such a moment of kind of us joining in the, the life in its just how things happen and you know that's life beautiful and deeply sad for me holding the broken bird so that openness of heart that non-separation we have that capacity to and when we take refuge in the Buddha we're taking refuge and aligning to that practice in this, when it isn't known and named, these places of I'm not good enough, like underneath a lot of what's going on, the movement then is to um, express greed, hatred, and delusion in relationship, 
in our lives. So there's this movement out of this emptiness to move out, to grab on something, to make something me or mine or to fill us up. And how many times have we done that in all kinds of ways? Just all the time, this wanting for something. And we understand why, no shame, no blame. But we understand why. This is not a personal failure, but a human dynamic that we are naming so that we might disentangle from it. So this movement to, um, to grasp onto something, and it could be through ownership, ownership of our bodies, ownership of our thoughts and our opinions, ownership of this is the right way to do something. Um, um, it could be through aversion and pushing away and defending. Um, and so it, it's part of that movement of also misunderstanding then our, that our home is in pleasant sensations. And that's what Venerable Fred was talking about today. That, that sense of, I have to have pleasant sensations, not just for the pleasantness, but because it's the misunderstanding that it will fill us up in some way deeper than that. And that's why it's so hard to give up all our stuff, right? Because it goes so deep. This, I'm not good enough, so I have to fill it up. And pleasant sensations are pleasant. So they alleviate some of that distress temporarily, but never ever do they heal. And then of course we're aversive because we're trying to protect ourselves from unpleasant. And we build up all these walls, you know. And Pema Chodron talks in, or someone quoted her, so I don't know which book it came from, of this, you know, experience of, no, I, you know, I don't want you coming here, and no, I don't want this sound, and I don't want this sound, and um, sort of finding that she was protecting herself, maybe this was before she came to the Dharma, and, and got to be in a smaller and smaller space, you know, until there was no space, because we are defending ourselves around everything, because we we are trying to protect what we have. And that is certainly true in South Africa. Like when I went to visit my cousins, they had like walls around their house, and then they had glass on the walls, and then they had electrical wire, and then at the, the front of their the housing estate, they had a person you know, with a gate, so you had to pass the guard at the gate. And the, all the windows had bars. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, that's what happens. That, that is a physical expression of the ways that we sometimes defend and protect ourselves. And it's just so beautiful 
to name it so that we can begin to discern it. And one of the takeaways I had from Utejaniya, a great Burmese master in the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw, is that he said, you will notice clinging in almost every mind moment. And when he first said that, I was like, really? And then I really started to say, okay, I'm going to prove him wrong. But he was right. It was like the subtle movement, and it would come so often. And I was like, oh, wow, that is so right on. He was naming reality, you know? So that's what, that's what the Buddha does. He's naming reality and he's naming our dynamics. And wow, what an incredible blessing to have someone naming the truth that you can trust because it resonates with our own experience, right? So, This is to say, whenever we have delusion, shamelessness, which is no fear of wrongdoing, restlessness, which has the characteristic of disquietude, like water whipped up by the wind, whose function is to make the mind unsteady. And then there's one more that isn't in here. It's, um, yeah, well, there's two as of shamelessness and fearlessness of wrong. One is shamelessness around mental states and the other is physical action. And restlessness and delusion, when those are all, um, when those are all together, Um, Let me reframe that. Whenever there is a wanting or a not wanting or conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, doubt, or any other unwholesome energy, revenge, fear, um, what else? Lack of faith, doubt, yes. Those four are always present. Delusion or ignorance, the incapacity to discern reality as it is. Shamelessness, no fear of wrongdoing. And restlessness, where the mind cannot settle and discern what's going on because it's so agitated all the time. So when there's doubt in the mind, when there's envy, when there's conceit, when there's fear, when there's anger, irritation, grumpiness, when there's clinging, obsession, desire, wanting, those four are always there. And it's really helpful to know that to help us when we're feeling those energies, at least even cognitively, to know there's no, nothing liberating 
about any of those energies. There's nothing nutritious. There is nothing skillful or wholesome. It's like wearing a necklace of shit around your neck, the Buddha said. Nothing of value. He did, actually. <laughs> so when we have a thought, you know, could just even be a simple thought, like, um, I can't believe that person did that. And you see like a little thread of that, like, uh, um, mm, like blaming, judgment, aversion, then you know you know, drop it. I actually say to myself, which I've mentioned so often, if there's no love and caring in my, in my thought, then I drop it because I know it's not true. Or I don't drop it immediately because sometimes I'm like, really? That's not true? But I'm like, can I, can I not find any caring in this? And then I have to say, okay, now you have to challenge yourself, Arena because you know, and that's my guideline. So the other side of the stream of um, not being at home and the forces that express themselves in creating and sustaining distress through greed, clinging, anxiety, fear, aversion, hatred, conceit, revenge and doubt. That dynamic has another dynamic, or not, it doesn't have it, there is another dynamic that is a counterforce and stronger. And the counterforce is faith, which is the forerunner along with mindfulness of all that is liberating, and that those bring all the other beautiful qualities into being. And the beautiful qualities, just to say this, are stronger than the unwholesome and unskillful ones because they have the power to transform them. So, let's name the beautiful qualities. What are they? Equanimity. Equanimity. Compassion, kindness, joy, patience. Ease, Ease. Truth. truth, generosity, forgiveness, forgiveness. Effort. effort, right effort, yes, trust, trust. Right, view. right view, yes, wisdom, beautiful, investigation. investigation, the seven factors of enlightenment, yes, curiosity, curiosity. investigation, yes, what? Concentration, yes, right concentration, yes, right livelihood, yes. So all these beautiful energies are energies that are there already living inside of us, just like ignorance, except they're stronger. And this retreat and our practice is supporting them to grow, to strengthen, so that when the mind is full of them, it's like there's no space for their unwholesome qualities to arise. Eventually, 
the root of ignorance is transformed and we, we could say we're fully at home. There is no dis-ease, no sense of belonging, no sense of being separate from life. There's, there's a, a, a flow of, of, and willingness, which um, I talked about in the Dharma talk of the Bodhisattva, just to create good conditions all the time. Not, I want to create good conditions for you, but that this flow of life supports that when it's un- unobstructed by ignorance and all, all the things that come out of it. It's, um, it's just so beautiful. So, I, I, so then I, I want to just read this um, in terms of, because um, it, it struck me when I was looking for uh, some notes about this talk. So Michelle Pfeiffer, <laughs> had been nominated for three Academy Awards and six Golden Globe Awards when she described her self-doubt in an interview in 2002. When asked how she had developed her gifts, Pfeiffer responded, I still think people will find out that I'm not really talented. I'm really not very good. It's a big sham. That is ignorance. That ongoing inadequacy and insufficiency, it doesn't matter how good you are. I love that. And then Kate Winslet, who is an amazing actress, said, "Um, Sometimes I wake up in the morning before going off to a shoot and I think I can't do this, I'm a fraud. Yeah, so sad. Sad for all of us that, I mean, really, it's not that sad because we're all here and we're all in the, on the path of liberation. And so that's like so. So royal, magnificent. <laughs> Because, and that's why you understand the Buddha said that there is nothing, not all the jewels in, in the kingdom is, has a value as much as being able to discern the truth about what brings suffering and what ends it. Because the jewels couldn't transform our hearts, but this practice can. You know, so when Venerable Fred says, oh yeah, let's go for it. Not like I have to fill myself up with ignorance, but let's see what obstructs our beautiful, our beautiful being by cultivating and growing the beautiful energies. That's, that just, it feels like that is the core mission of all our lives. So let me, 
let me uh, end with a poem. This is Mary Oliver again. Because I don't think I've got a one. It's called White Flowers. I, I, I just wanted to feel into, you know, um, something to end with in my own words before I read a poem to end. And um, it's been interesting that this retreat, my parents have come up so much for me. And um, something about like the circle, maybe in my own retirement that my parents have come through in some way. And, um, and so I wanted to, uh, to end with uh, an image that I've spoken about before, which is when they were in jail, we, um, the children of all the political prisoners who had been arrested under the Emergency Act in 1960 um, were driven to the, to the prison and we had a demonstration. And I can't remember exactly this, the sign that I held up. I was nine at the time. But now, I, I in thinking of this young girl holding a sign, want to hold up the sign of there is there is um, nothing as the Buddha said about um, loving kindness. There's not a sixteenth. Can you remember, venerable? Read that saying, there's not a sixteenth worth of something or other than love. Oh, well, anyway, I can't remember. But so on my sign is, I'm taking a stand for love. And um, for liberation. And if I was, you know, to die tomorrow, and you all were to come to a memorial, I hope you would say, and Arena said about her life, I am taking a stand for love and liberation and carrying this imaginary poster through my life and through each moment of my life. Last night in the fields, I lay down in the darkness to think about death. But instead, I fell asleep, as if in a vast and sloping room, 
filled with those white flowers that open all summer, sticky and untidy in the warm fields. When I woke, the morning light was just slipping in front of the stars, and I was covered with blossoms. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if my body went diving down under the sugary vines in some sleep-sharp infinity with the depths or whatever that green energy with the depths, or whether that green energy rose like a wave and curled over me, claiming me in its husky arms. I pushed them away, but I didn't rise. Never in my life had I felt so plush, or so slippery, or so resplendently empty. Never in my life had I felt myself so near that porous line where my own body was done with and the roots and the stems and the flowers began. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you, everyone online and embodied for your listening.